Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Alex Bradley Cohen. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has recently acquired Cohen's 2015 painting, For a More Just Future. Cohen's paintings of people and places are often blendings of his personal relationships with art history. His work has been exhibited in State of the Art 2020 at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art and the Momentary, and at group shows at the University Art Museum at the University of Albany, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Studio Museum in Harlem. On the second segment, I'll talk with Anne Dumas about Hockney Van Gogh, the joy of nature at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. But before I talk with Alex Bradley Cohen, we have a special treat this week, a preview from composer, performer, and sound designer Leah Bertucci's forthcoming album, A Visible Length of Light. In the fall of 2020, Bertucci was in residence at one of our partners, the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha. While there, she recorded that new album I mentioned a moment ago, A Visible Length of Light. On April 16th, it will be released by Cybochrome Editions. In a moment, I'll tell you how to get it. Bertucci's work examines relationships between acoustic phenomena and biological resonance. For this new work, mostly conceived during the pandemic, Bertucci presents the product of reactions to and reflections upon the instability that was 2020. Bertucci has performed across the United States and Europe, including at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, Museo Reina Sofia in Madrid, and the Renaissance Society in Chicago. She was also a 2016 McDowell Fellow in Composition. At manpodcast.com, we'll have links to Bertucci's SoundCloud page and to her Bandcamp page, that one's leahbertucci.bandcamp.com, where you can pre-order the album digitally or on vinyl. The vinyl version is available in a limited edition of 475. You might want to move on that one quickly. A deluxe edition of just 25 copies that included a custom-printed Endless Loop cassette is already sold out. One more thing. If a Bemis residency sounds good to you, the Bemis is now accepting applications for 2022 residencies. The deadline is April 1st. That's coming up. Go to bemiscenter.org apply for more. Back to Bertucci. Here's a preview excerpt from the first track on A Visible Length of Light. It's called On Opposite Sides of Sleep.
Thanks to the Bemis and to Leah Bertucci for sharing that with us. Alex Bradley-Cohen is next, after the break. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents At One Min World by Princess, an interdisciplinary performance art duo, on March 11th at 8 p.m. At One Min World is a video song cycle and live performance about social media and cell phone culture that pushes the formal boundaries of online video streaming to challenge the distinction between live performance and pre-recorded video. At One Min World was recorded on stage at the Warhol Theater of the Andy Warhol Museum. This virtual at low-end performance will be followed by a Q&A with band members Alexis Gideon and Michael O'Neill and Rachel Adams, Bemis Center Chief Curator and Director of Programs. Virtual at low-end performances are an integral part of Bemis Center's Sound Art and Experimental Music Program and are presented with lead support by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Stream at twitch.tv slash Bemis Center. Twitch account not required. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a free new app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere. The app doesn't address just a single institution or one exhibition, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural offerings, including some with which you might not be as familiar creating exciting opportunities for you to find new ideas that address your interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for many institutions, including Washington's Phillips Collection, which just opened Seeing Differently, the Phillips Collects for a New Century, a series of 100th anniversary celebrating installations that show how artists have addressed questions around history, identity, place, and more. Learn how to visit the exhibition, about individual artworks in it, and take thematic tours through the galleries, all on Bloomberg Connects. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies to make arts and culture accessible to more people around the world. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, to hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. You can download Bloomberg Connects on the Apple app and Google Play stores, and from app.bloombergconnects.org slash modernartnotes. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take 6 allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take 6 will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Alex Bradley-Cohen, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Five or so years ago, you told the Chicago website Inside Within that a long time ago, seeing a Matisse show at the Art Institute of Chicago 
motivated you to paint people and to do so in a way that suggested stories and, and, and cultures. What in that show, what in Matisse clicked for you and why? Yeah, very specifically was this The Blue Window by Matisse. I remember seeing that. Like I had not really seen art before. And I was like, but I was a little bit older when I went to community college. I was 19. And man, I just saw that image and I fell into it. I saw that exhibition with my mentor, teacher, friend, who I met when I was at undergrad. We, he took me to the Art Institute and we went together. And it was the way that he broke down form, broke down image, broke down objects within the picture plane into just pure blocks of color. There was something fearless and something, and I was a skater. I was already like skateboarding. And this is actually something that I realized recently that actually really hit me was I think that my skateboarding allows to the mind or gives the mind the opportunity to reestablish re, um, relationships in the, with objects in the world. So I think when I came to painting, I had already had this free will to recreate objects in structures in space so i think when i saw the way that he was like building those paintings it felt familiar to me as a visual language was something that i felt like i was already doing intuitively through skateboarding it, it felt similar like he was using these shapes and forms and objects in the real world but he was reestablishing new relationships with them through form and color and paint and i think it spoke to me because it was something that I had already done, I was doing. That show was Matisse Radical Invention, 1913 to 1917. The year was 2010. The show was at both the Art Institute and at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. We'll have links to the two museums' exhibition pages on manpodcast.com. What's, what's really interesting is it's not, it's pretty easy to understand your entire practice is coming out of that show. And with the painters, Matisse was engaging in those years of his peak engagement with Cubism, painters like Picasso, of course, but even more Juan Gris, Jean Metzinger and, 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 and others. Did something in that show also guide you to portraiture or did your interest in the figure and the relationship between the figure and the painter start somewhere else? No, I think it, it also probably came out of that show, but painting or representing like a figure also with something kind of intuitive. But two things I'll say, yes, it, there was a painting in that museum and it's kind of killing me that I'm forgetting the name of it. But it was, I think it was the blue figure, or the blue nude. Blue nude, 1907, Baltimore's collection. Yeah, and what was kind of amazing about seeing that, the blue nude, was that my professor, Alberto Aguilar, like it was like one of the first paintings you saw when you walked in. And he told me this story about how when that image, that painting was first shown at the Art Institute, the students rejected it because they felt that it was too crude. And I, you know, 2010, me, 19, looking at it, I'm like, wow, that's so mind-blowing. That at one point in time, this painting was seen as, like, crude. And for me, it was like, I didn't have that really. It was like, it was beautiful, you know, like it, I wasn't challenged in that way which was you know maybe says something to the times and just like how much society and behaviors have changed so yeah i would say that figure it was like wow you could do this or like 
I don't know, something in that, that image when I saw it, it was the first painting in that story kind of just was like, spoke to me. I, I love that. I, I Blue Nude is, for me, the most important and influential painting of the 20th century, at least Western painting of the 20th century. And I, I love to know that it still rides. But also I would say, yeah, in to that too, before, like one thing that I've also been thinking about a little bit as it relates to just like visual culture or just the nature of the paintings that I make is that I was already, even before I went to art school or even took art classes at community college, I didn't realize this until very recently, was that like I was already introduced to a visual culture before that through skateboarding. Because I started skateboarding when I was like in like fourth grade or fifth grade. And the thing about that was that like when you would go into the skate shop, not only were there photographs and images all around of prints and art by local artists, like the skateboards themselves all had visual skateboard companies all had visual languages and those visual languages spoke to a kind of like a culture or a way of being or an aesthetic and skateboarding i mean some people probably know this by now skateboarding is pretty modern and pop there are very a lot of different languages and subcultures even amongst skateboarding and in skateboarding that people skate in different styles and different ways and there's different ideologies around what people do and how they do it, that there was already this visual culture that I was responding to and had a relationship with. Yeah, like you go to the, you pick out your skateboard and one of the things, the special things about that was that you got to pick out the, you got to respond to it based off its graphic, you know, its graphic content was always like a, an important part to like getting a new skateboard. So like there was figure, you know, there's figures and notes and the drawings and the cartooning. And I feel like for me, between what was happening, what I was responding to in the museum as a student as, that went through the establishment and also the, the kid who grew up like skateboarding and graffiti and like always oscillating between those two areas of visual information and, and aesthetics and behavior, I'd say. I think, I think behavior is really important. You know, now that you mentioned Blue Nude, as I think about your painting, I see over and over again your treating legs and feet the way the legs and feet in, in Blue Nude exist. A painting like Sean McElroy from 2017, where you present his left leg as this, you know, I mean this in the best possible way, an unnatural vertical line. <laughs> Picasso, though, I'll actually say that. There's a lot Picasso. of Picasso in that painting, too. Yeah, well, the guitar is in the background, or super Picasso. But that leg is, you know, recalls for me the way the leg is folded over in, in, in Blue Nude, even as the right hand of the figure in that painting recalls piles of Picasso paintings, the treatment of fingers um, alongside the edges of chairs. Yeah, well, maybe maybe someday some version of the Baltimore Museum of Art will do a... Uh, an Alex Bradley Cohen and Matisse's Blue Nude show. Yeah, I know that. And I don't think they're going to call me to do it these days, but maybe maybe a future iteration of the, of the museum. Speaking of, of Picasso, one, you know, just as portraiture is a near constant in your work, another is is your compression of space, which I think is across a canvas is more Matissean than it is Picassoian, but there are you know so, plenty of Picassoian passages in your paintings you are sometimes flattening space through painterly means you're 
most often compressing space in ways that make the viewer think about the space between the viewer and the subject of the painting, about how we stand in relation to the person and environment you're painting. Do you think about how you want your viewer to have a visual relationship with the person in your painting or is the person in your painting more just part of a bigger puzzle? Uh, yes. When I first began to make the portraits, I would say in 2015-16, I think so I, I would say there's it's both. But when I first started, it was really yeah, intentional that it was specific and that it was intimate and that you would have this one-to-one sort of relationship with the other and sort of have that experience of yeah, being in relationship to another person. But there was always this anonymity that I was always trying to also place within that subject, that it wasn't that you just saw them and you could see them and then you can have them and that you can know them, that there was something maybe, I guess you could say unknown being presented as well as in relationship to a known subject. So that sort of tension could be also experienced in that person's sort of like subjectivity. But now I see them looking back, I could see that the exhibitions in themselves was a kind of like puzzle. The ex like in the context of them being shown together, that that was a puzzle, that you were kind of moving through the exhibition and having sort of these these one-off relationships with an other and how that can maybe begin to destabilize a kind of knowingness. You know, before we hit the record button, you were telling me about how you were originally attracted to painting your friends, the humanity of the people you know and like being around. But as the, you got to making these paintings over many years, you found, <laughs> paradoxically, that their personhood became less important. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of messed up. And, <laughs> and it, and, and, but in the painting, in the context of the painting, I realized that like when I was actually painting, what I was actually empathetic to, <laughs> you know, like what, you know, because I was making them alone and I was basing them off photos and the the moment of connection happened when the photo was taken and then what was happening when I was painting was another moment of empathizing and communicating and understanding that was happening with the painting and as I made the work throughout the years I just I, I felt that I needed to honor that because I always liked painting alone. But yes, yeah, it became a weird thing. And it was a real hard thing for me to, to understand and accept. And like in my next exhibition, there's not going to be any portraits of any individual people. They're all built environments that I'm constructing based off photographs and my own memory. Because I realized that the thing that became that I became more sensitive to was the image and not the subject or that person's subjectivity in itself. And I think it was it's really important for me to for me at this point to maybe even like remove the two that this person is important to me, but maybe the painting and the person is not the same thing that they can be two separate things or that and I'm fine with that at this point because just my what I'm interested in is different. My interests have changed maybe i'm I'm less interested in my own subjectivity in a sense that I saw these people as an extension of myself, and I would say 
in an intimate space. And I would say that these new paintings are still a representation of myself, but in a, a space outside of knowing. They're a little bit more drawing, more from a place of the unknown for me, that I felt like I was moving further away from representation in the paintings of the other. So then I was just like, okay, I don't, I don't need to do this. Like I could do something else to get out my ideas. And so I'm kind of abandoning representation and abandoning portraiture and knowingness and applying a different kind of logic to the painting that comes out of like improvisation or intuition that, and that comes out of like a, a practice of walking that has also maybe been influenced by quarantine in a sense, which I didn't really want to make quarantine art, but it's kind of just happening. Like I'm not actually the past year having conversations and talking to people and sitting in front and having that direct one-to-one relationship, the intimate relationships that I am having with others is through walking. But I was kind of conscious of that already and the ways in which I'm constructing the image through line I'm very much conscious and aware is the ways in which I am walking through space. Like I'm drawing this line through this space and I'm creating a narrative and using representational forms and objects, but it's movement through space is playful. I'll say that they're, they're playful and they're, they're, they're not. Yeah. And in that play, I'm able to, to recreate more. And I think that's what I really wanted to do in a sense too, was recreate into, into, into construct a world and I think when I was limited by the other, by the other, and in relationship to myself, it just limited what was available to me and what was available to the painting. And I can now recreate a whole other sort of structure. It's a little bit more self-reliant. Like I'm, it's, they're, they're less codependent and less dependent upon the other, but they still have a, a relationship to the, you know, the real, the real world, which I think is what kind of holds their humanity, hopefully. My favorite thing about your painting's relationship to the real world is that they feel like the real world. And then if you're an art history nerd, you realize that they may feel like the real world, but they're full of things stolen from painters you like. (laughs) Yeah, which is the real world. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One, And we're going to talk about some of the ways you do that as we go along here. But one of those ways is the way you paint textiles and tables in the foregrounds of your paintings over and over again. Why are tabletops and textiles useful to you, air quotes, useful to you as a painter? This is funny. This is a funny... Yeah, so the tabletops, yeah, it, yeah, it does come out of like modernism and like cubism and looking at those paintings and the kind of idea of the cafe scene of this social space where ideas can be exchanged and for, yeah. So, it, but then it, the, the table also became like a, a stage because I'm not using naturalism to depict the objects that are on the table. I'm using abstraction, the language of abstraction and color. And it just became a, a it became a place that I could create a composition within the painting itself. And that, that there was a, a conversation happening in that space between the, the cups or the plates or the hands or whatever have you. Like the, the tabletop really in itself became a conversation amongst itself that then when you then gazed into the subject's eyes, there was already something 
maybe destabilizing about that moment, but then maybe something stabilizing about that moment. Like it was a destabilizing and then a stabilizing. And the table just became like the, the stage or the platform. And the textiles, yeah, well, it's funny, the real world, right? Like, yeah, like it's funny. It's like, wait, it's actually, it is, the, it's like, it is my real life. My mom was a waitress, but she also kind of made art. But in the house that I grew up in, she created like a mosaic inside and I can send you an image in my aunt's house as well but so there was art around and actually my aunt's house is super super similar to those Matisse paintings that he made when he was in Morocco because she has all these like Moroccan pillows placed around her living room and so when I saw those paintings it just kind of brought up that memory of being at my aunt's house and my mom kind of created this mosaic within our home that was like an underwater scene so that influenced me textiles i think i would say skateboarding just the interweaving of textures in the world and then subjectivities like so the textile just became a a, a fabric that could represent that it was a fabric or a texture or something but it also yeah it came from the tease and it came from making a, an image more complicated or trying to complicate an image through patterns. You also use tabletops as a place where you can put winking art historical references. Yeah, no, no, yeah. In your in your painting of Imani Jackson, you have a coffee pitcher that is both a riff on Matisse's samovars and Solowit paintings. In your painting of Raven Munsell from 2018, you have a glass that is a goldfish lacking Matisse jar. Um, I'm sorry, Matisse uh, uh, water. What's the word I'm looking for? Like the thing that the fish lives yeah. in, the water bowl. Yeah, whatever you call that. All of your coffee cups are kind of winking drive-bys at Diebenkorn. You turn plates uh, of food Elmer, into Elmer, Elmer Bischoff. And Elmer lots Bischoff. of Bischoff. And lots of Bischoff. Bischoff, but... Also, that Raven one, I would say, is a little bit more, I think it's called AM by Alex Katz. And it was a painting of Ada from like the 1950s. And it was just like glowing yellow. I would say in some ways that, yeah, you know, the thing, yes, this is so funny that you're cracking the codes. But no, Bischoff for sure. Bischoff was like, but yeah, it's funny. But I mean, it's me in my like yeah there, yeah there's a narrative there you know there is a real narrative there that is intertwined with the, the the people that it was about like i putting these people in these everyday situations but the thing about that was that going to the museum was a part of the everyday like looking at paintings is a part of the everyday having conversations with people is a part of the everyday like i never separated or these things aren't separate in my mind so it's like yeah there are these painterly influences that become a part of the paintings but that's just because looking at paintings is a part of my life and that's kind of like i think important for for them is that looking at painting is not separate from talking to someone those two things happen you know like they have they have happened they happen and they will happen and that's so much a part of also the, the ideology of the everyday that I'm trying to represent is that these painterly influences are a part of my who I am. 
And so it's like, it is important in some ways to um, put that into the paintings because that these, like I'm, I'm, I am complicated by the music I listen to, by the people I talk to and by the images I see, they all have an influence on who I am. And I definitely in my twenties, right? Like early twenties, like being influenced by all these painters, I really loved the paintings. <laughs> a, a great example of that, of what you're describing, is a painting from 2015 called Chanel. It is full of references to, I think, a specific painter. You can tell me who, who the person in the painting is in a second. It's uh, a reference to uh, a pose from, you know, a classical pose. And then it's not only, I think, of a painter, but references another painter on uh, on the tabletop in the foreground. And we were just talking about tabletops, too. So who is that painter, um, who, who, by the way, almost unique in, in, in your portraits, her mouth appears to be open and, and, and she appears to be talking. Who, who is that painter and how does the way you built lines across that painting pile other painters into that picture? I actually can't remember who I was thinking or looking at when I made that painting. No, I know exactly what painting you're talking about. But now looking back, I mean, there was definitely like a... I mean, you could put Juan Green in there. Who are you thinking of? Because maybe you I think actually... The ta- I think the tabletop is Bryce Martin. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's definitely some Bryce Martin. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but there was somebody... There was Maybe that's what it was. Just Yeah, like working through these ideas, like stealing it, like it just putting it in there because that influenced me just like this other experience, like the experience of looking at paintings. But yeah, you know, it might have been Bryce Martin. The straight lines in the background are, are not at all Van Gogh colors, but they're very much Van Gogh lines. The classical pose, of course, of the hands over and behind the head. And then the way you construct the arms and the body recall saw LeWitt again without ever really being LeWitt. And then, of course, there's a lot of Picasso in the face. Is this Nina Chanel Abney, whose, whose work also exists in a lot of your paintings? No, it's a friend, Chanel, Chanel Chiffon who I went to undergrad with, who's actually also having a really nice moment right now. Yeah, no. Yeah, they're all people that I know. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you certainly know her painting, though. Yeah, no, I definitely know her painting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were um, really influ- big when I was like an undergrad to me. And then I saw the show in Chicago, like 2018, maybe, at the Cultural Center. And yeah, it was special. Before you turned to portraits and pictures of friends in space you made in the in the early to mid 2010s paintings that were very much engaged simultaneously with with the history and the history painting tradition and there are two of them I want to ask about the first one is uh, a 2013 painting called When We Learned. What is that picture showing us, and why was that a scene or story you wanted to tell? Those, so there, that was a series of paintings that I made, yeah, like around 2013, 2014, when I was still in undergrad. And those paintings were also really always hard for me to talk about because they were coming from a, a deeper personal space that I think I didn't know how to navigate in language. But when I was, yeah, when I was an undergrad, art from art became a, a place where I could tell stories. And that was heavily influenced by hip hop. Like I grew up listening to hip hop, like 
all day, every day, and I still kind of do. And so when I began to make images that maybe need or desire to tell stories was there. And so for me, that image spoke to a kind of lived experience as well. When I was in fourth grade, I got (laughs) kicked out of the school that I went to and I was sent to like a, a, I was sent to a therapeutic day school for four years. And when I was in undergrad, I had yet to have any sort of actual verbal language to talk about some of the maybe more traumatic experiences of my youth. And I don't know how I came across this image of these students. It was aligned with the Black Panther movement. And they were all like militant and standing upright. And that was that. And they were all in in a classroom type classroom recalling setting. Yeah. In a classroom. And so that really was it just it brought out it brought back a memory of being in a kind of militaristic classroom setting. And I I I wanted to I wanted to make that image. I wanted to because it was personal in nature. But and because, yeah, I think when I was in undergrad, I was really alienated from part of my life because of I'm half white and half black. But when I went to the Art Institute, it was like really the first time I was really in a school setting that was almost all white. And I didn't know and I didn't know how to navigate it. So I, I wanted to make these images when I was there that represented parts of my lived experience that I didn't feel like were represented there in that moment, in that time. And I felt like making these images was a way for me to introduce my story into that place. And then, you know, now it's introducing that story into the place of painting. And now what is actually also happening in society is that these narratives, these personal narratives are being introduced into the mainstream consciousness of America. You know, like we are now talking about police brutality. We are now talking about the school to prison pipeline. We are now talking about these issues. There's a movie about the Panthers that's about to come out, you know, like a, like a, you know, air quotes, feel good movie about the Panthers, which yeah. was inconceivable. So these things weren't, ma- these weren't major themes, you know, even like 10 years ago, 15 years, like, yeah, like 15 years ago. Uh, oh no, 2013, seven years ago. Oh, my time's way off. But but they were things that I had experienced. So I wanted to make sure that they found their way into the images that I made. Because, you know, one of the big things that for Matisse was joy. Like I really also wanted to represent joy and paint joy, but it was important for me at that time to make these images because I was so outside of my place when I was an undergrad at the School of the Art Institute. But then I was so inside of my place at the same time. Like, that was the thing. Like I was looking at Jacob Lawrence. I was looking at Ramar Bearden. I was looking at Buford Delaney. I was looking at Faith Ringgold. I was looking at Carrie James Marshall. And so that possibility of telling a story through an image of a lived experience just felt right. And yeah, but I didn't have the language then. I have a little bit more language now to talk about those experiences and those setbacks in these kind of st- this this system of maybe like <laughs> oppression. But at that time, I didn't. And making the image was 
more urgent for me in that context. Two years later, so in 2015, you made a painting called For a More Just Future. It's the painting that the Nasher recently acquired. 2015, that year, American police killed 1,134 people. The rate of black men killed by police was quintuple that of the rate at which they killed white men. Appreciating that statistics like that don't require an artist to respond to or engage with a single instigating event, do you remember what brought you to such an art historically Goya Manet loaded scene of the threat, at least, of American police violence in 2015? Yeah, I mean, lived experience and what was happening in America. But yeah, well, yeah, so I think that painting might have actually been made in 2014, but that does, that's besides the point because it was actually very much responding to the Mike Brown situation and incident that happened that summer. And yeah, it was just like this other moment that was just kind of, one word is like, it was intense. It was another moment where maybe, yeah, like loaded image. I mean, it was sitting in my studio and it felt like the only thing I could do was to, was to make this painting in a sense. Like, like this was the way that I felt as a painter that I could respond to this situation or this incident or this scenario or this trauma or this dialogue or this conversation and this event was to make the painting because I, I'm not involved in legislation and I'm not involved in community organizing. I'm involved in image making and picture making. And so at that moment, it felt like that was the most urgent thing to do. And it was probably reactionary at the time. Like now I don't think I make those types of images anymore or I'm not going to really respond in that way but what what I knew because I'm kind of a cynic of of the art market was that I never showed any of these paintings I always kind of made them because I never wanted them to just be used so actually what happened was that I made these paintings and I kind of just like put them away I never really showed anyone or talked about them but my gallerist Nikal knew about them and she, this is fast forward to just how this painting maybe even got seen, was that she asked last summer if she could post it on Instagram during when all the protests and everything was breaking out in the summer. And I was really hesitant at first. I was like, man, this is so out of like character to what I do and what I am kind of known for that I didn't really want to exploit the moment at all. So I was like, okay, the only way that I feel comfortable having this image be circulated is that if anyone in, becomes interested in it, which is so crazy, that that money would just get 100% donated to an organization, which then became the organization in Chicago called the Chicago Freedom School. So but I'm just talking about this painting because at the moment when I made it, it was a little reactionary, but I feel like what happened to the painting was a little bit more in relationship to how I kind of viewed these images that sitting in the studio, like, what can I do? I can make this painting, but also what can I then do after that is that I can then in support an organization that also is indirect, that is directly confronting these issues that I'm not on a personal daily basis. So then basically I was like, yeah, the only way that you can show this is that if someone's interested and buys it, the money goes 100% to an organization, which then what happened 
But then what was also kind of amazing and beautiful is that then not only did that money get circulated into an organization, that the, then the painting got donated to a museum. And so for me, like that whole other story with that painting, it, that it now is housed in a place where people can see it and think about it and talk about it and contextualize and just not even just contextualize it, but give context to a lived experience and the lived experience of a whole generation, a whole community and a whole, a whole community of people. I think I feel good about and has like a, a weight to it. But at the moment, it was a little bit more reactionary when I made it in my studio. We'll have a link to um, Chicago Freedom School on manpodcast.com. Because it'd be at the Freedom School is, is a, yeah, I mean, yeah, just because of my own, you know, therapeutic day school for four years and that, that setting was actually really good and healthy for me. But it was 100% the school to prison pipeline where like each classroom had like 10 students, a teachers and a teacher's aide, and there was like security and police in the school. And so I think I saw a statistic like when I was older, like of the school, it was like 99.9% of the kids were African-American and living in poverty, which I wasn't. Like I was at the time, like what I remember, like I was the only kid that lived with both parents that went to that school. Some kids maybe lived with their mom. You know, most of them really didn't really know their dad. And a lot of them lived with their grandma or were wards of the state. So being in that, 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 that influence, that has, that has had an impact on me because I've been lucky in my life to be where I am now. But I know lots of people from my childhood that really just ended up going to jail. <laughs> like, like they just ended up going to jail, like, because that was their, that was the trajectory that they were put on. And to escape that is an impossibility when we put the weight of, when we begin criminalizing children at such a young age. So for me, that in, like being able to even just support an organization that has hands-on approach to helping youth is really important to me as well as making the image. So those paintings, like I have, a, I have some and I do know that every time that I do show them and or sell them, that that money just goes directly to an organization because I really do believe in change. And I and I just think images sometimes my cynical side of image making is that it becomes like a, a commodity. And, like, and, it, and, it, and it, sometimes it gets in the way of, of me painting. But that's just another story. You know, this this painting is an Americanization and a contemporaryization of Goya's 3rd of May and Manet's execution of the Emperor Maximilian. Why did you choose those paintings to jump off from for your address of American police violence? I think it it wasn't that intentional. I had already made four paintings in 2013, and they were all based off of historical photographs that were black and white. I'm sorry, black and white, you mean black and white photographs or black and white metaphorically? Oh, black and white photographs. So when I made the one in 2014-15, I was thinking about it in a, so color I was thinking. I mean, and it it actually also was the composition of the photograph that I was responding to, which is actually really interesting. It put it directly into the street and where the, the action was taking place. And it using the black and white as a tone or as a color gave way to light. I don't know. I I I was responding to the 
other paintings that I had made previously. And then the, the actual structure or the composition was the photograph that just most, I wasn't really thinking about art history when I made it. Transitioning back to art history a little bit, as I m mentioned earlier, I'm a big art history nerd. And so one of the things that I just adore about your work is how you are engaging artists as different in their work and different across time as Nina Chanel Abney and Jacob Lawrence, who we've already mentioned, Leger, lot, lots of other painters. So I'm going to try and raise a few specific paintings and painters a few specific of your paintings and, and, and painters and, and kind of ask you about some relationships. One of them is a painting from 2020 called Heavy Appreciation. It feels to me like a, a very direct, indeed patriotic address of, of Jacob Lawrence. Yeah, no, totally. And I made that before everything even happened in 2020, which was really kind of funny, like how that painting also became like represent like could represent 2020 but i made it before everything kind of hit the fan of 2020 but yes definitely a direct i mean compositionally of jacob Lawrence, but also yeah it was collapsing this figure into itself and and i think it was it was about you know like the figures like collapsed it was like yeah it was like the figure is collapsed into itself but that also is about and so there was like a um, a sense of like showing gratitude, but also kind of like a, like an exhaustion and thinking about like that space of both. Yeah, maybe like showing gratitude, being exhausted. I think it was something that I was like, it would, and that was kind of a self-portrait too, in a sense. But I was just also um, had just finished that second show at Nickel's and I was finishing grad school at the same time. And so... I think I, it was a little, it was, a, it was autobiographical. It was about kind of, about, I don't know, that image was about exhaustion. <laughs> I think I was exhausted when I made that painting. But oscillating in that space between, like, I've been thinking a lot about solitude and alienation being both restorative and anxiety inducing. How being alone is both a moment of, of restoration but is also a moment of alienation and thinking about those two spaces. I think I misread the title. The title is With Heavy Appreciation. The blues in the painting are just right out of Lawrence's blues. The, the colors of the painting are red, white, and blue, which I'm guessing is a specific nod to Black American patriotism. No, it wasn't. But the, but you know there. I mean, there, it's it's symbolic of like a cross in a sense. Was, I mean, yeah. No, that painting was me trying to create. I mean, many influences. But I think when I was making that painting, I was trying to create a symbol. Um, in a sense, represented the beginning of something new, and I think it was these paintings that now I have been working on the past six or seven months. It was like a, there was no eyes. There was no face. There was no being seen or seeing. I had eliminated all the, all that, all of those ideas from the painting. Um, the head was hung over. So oh, you see bowed, the back of the Bowed head. anyway. <laughs> bowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bowed. Should, yeah, yeah. But it also curled up. Yeah, it's hard not to notice you're making that painting as Lawrence's struggle series was making its way across across museums. No, yeah, definitely that. But yes, like 
as a structure. I was, uh, I can't think of what the title of that, I mean, it's the one famous painting. I can't think of the title, but it is a figure. It's a white figure. His hands like on the table and he's also bowed over or slouched over. I can't think of that one. From the migration series. Yeah, it's, a, it's at the moment. Series. Yeah. Well, those paintings all have 40 word titles, so you can hardly be expected to, <laughs> to remember it. We'll get, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com though. Speaking of Lawrence, your 2017 painting, Bruce Wilson in Flaxman Library, reminds me of him too. Flaxman, by the way, is, is the library at the School of the Art Institute. Is that bookcase in, in the background of that painting borrowed from Lawrence's many, many paintings of libraries? A hundred percent. I would say it was three references. Jeff, it was Jacob Lawrence, the ways in which he represented books as like bright, bold shapes. Also, Chris Johansson, and also Mary Hallman. I was really became interested in the way that Mary Hallman, just her ability to play on the surface with color and shapes. And I was like, okay, how can I, like, okay, I can make, I can make this, this bookcase representational, but like, like how, like what else can I do? You know, like how can I play in a sense? Like I really, that painting for me was about what's that's what I'm saying. Like it was so interesting about like the painting is about Bruce, but the painting is about play and the painting is about painting. And the painting is about also a very specific moment that I had with Bruce inside of the library where we had a, a, a moment of connection where we understood something about each other that we had yet known. And it was three things that we had experienced intimately that we never knew we had experienced and it was um one we had both went to harold washington community college and this we knew and we had the same mentor alberto aguilar who then sent us to the art institute and uh, so we then both were like at the art institute and i had just had a, a very personal experience that he had also had had too and it was just like this moment of sharing sort of connection. So it was like, yeah, I want to like represent this moment and I want to make this painting of Bruce. But then it was also like, I want to make it playful and I want to make it joyful. So, you know, like it is the context of the library, but also the subject is play. And I was playing with the forms and the colors and the structure within that image. And yeah, and I was pulling on Chris Johansson and I was pulling on Jacob Lawrence and I was pulling on the freeformed abstractions of Mary Hallman and the idea of compare and contrast and how much can I get away from and without ever losing it. And this idea of like a outrunning representation in a sense. And in that other idea of withholding through color, like I'm withholding information, I'm outrunning representation, I'm using abstraction i am playing like which is very essential so that's what that image sort of was all these things for me it was a personal moment that i had with bruce it was in it was a personal moment that i had with bruce inside the library that i expressed through play that's really great the, the mary highland passage is in the lower left hand portion of the painting particularly and and i think that if i were writing about this painting i'd argue that the right hand 50 percent maybe unconsciously is is borrowed from uh, Hans Hoffman the, those passages of color and the way you push the blue paint around in, in, in the upper right hand corner 
Your 2017 painting, Rachel, is one of, I think, a lot of your paintings that seems informed by Lubaina Himmet. Is she a painter that's been important to you? And if so, why? Just the past few years. No, it was not. In, that one specifically, I can't say, was inspired or motivated by her use of color, form, and figure. But yeah, she's an, an artist that I, honestly I have just kind of known about maybe since 2017, just the last probably three, four years. So I can't say that she was inside of my vocabulary or skull at the time. But now, very much interested in her use of narratives, the way that she's able to kind of like create a world in which a story is told through figuration, I think is actually kind of genius. And I've been looking back at some of her earlier works and just like her development of figuration to me is like and pull in figuration, but narrative and pulling on history and like fiction and to tell stories and just like all the like formal invention as well. But yeah, she's someone I've honestly just have come into contact with as a painter. Lots of tabletops, lots of flat surfaces, lots of compression of space, lots of joining foreground and rear ground of paintings by having paintings on the wall behind people or windows behind people. There's a lot of, I think there's, yeah, a lot of discourse going on there. Yeah, now there is. Yeah. And then <laughs> I always get really excited too when I meet a, like a, a painter just like in the abstract, like as, as a viewer, when they use acrylic. Because it was something that was always like I had all my teachers when I was an undergrad tried to push me away from acrylic and tried to get me to use oil. So it's I also also get very excited when I see a painter use acrylic paint in like an interesting way. I mean, that's like Carrie James Marshall. I mean, Chris Johansson, David Hockney, Cole Scott, Henry Taylor. The list goes on and on of like artists who also use acrylic paint that also Really, I mean, and then being in Chicago, which is funny, we haven't even talked about this, is the Imagist. Like, I not only studied with them, but was also inspired by them early on. And they're used to being just using acrylic as a flat surface to depict these sort of images. And I think that's the thing, is that there is a huge influence that I have been inspired by, like, you know, the Western canon of image making. But there is, like, also a lot of inspiration by the images found in the everyday and then the local and then um and just graphics graphic art there's the uh the nabis you know like the the like bouillard and bernard the diagonals in your paintings especially yeah and the intimate spaces that they were able to develop through the foreshortening of space and collapsing both figure and ground so that those two spaces completed each other and there was a direct relationship that they had with each other and that the worlds were sort of with the worlds were constructed out of the figures themselves. And so having that kind of like socialist kind of ideology sort of be a part definitely for me of these new paintings. Like I'm really thinking about that. Like if there was a response to the moment now, it's definitely the response to democratic socialism and that being the movement on the left that most inspires me and wanting to kind of have those ideas infiltrate the paintings is as I am thinking about the ways in which the spaces are constructed out of the figures and therefore the the figures construct the space and the space then kind of has that direct relationship to the figure development. So I want to group a couple of your paintings because I think 
they might be informed by one particular painter. One is your 27 portrait of Derek Adams. Another is your 2019 portrait of Madeline Aguilar. And the third is a 2018 picture called Jared that I think we referenced a little earlier. Are each of these pictures in some ways engagements with Stanley Whitney? Oh, yeah. Stanley Whitney, definitely even back in that Bruce Wilson. Yeah. And he's another one that I think about in in direct relationship with Mary Hallman is that freedom. And I heard him actually talk, just like in a video, I watched some video recently, and he was talking about color being the space or something, uh, being the structure or the form. Or the, definitely as an African-American artist, seeing someone unapologetically abandon the figure and use color freely and on a surface. I mean, I love that. And in some ways, it's like where I'm trying to get to. In a sense, like I've, I've been thinking about this term of, yeah, like outrunning representation or like withholding through color. Um, these two ideas are definitely prevalent for me and Stanley Whitney. And um, I don't know, like, yeah, he's great. I don't really much. I don't know. My brain's kind of fried right now. But no, Stanley Whitney for sure has been an influence on as a young artist, as a young painter, as a place, as a possibility. You know, he represents a place to go like there's a, like he he opened a space. And I think as a young artist, that is hopeful for me it is as, as color being a subject of my paintings. And finally, it seems to me that there is a relationship between your pictures and Alice Neal's. And I don't think you're trying to do Alice Neal's. I think for me anyway, you're trying not to do Alice Neal's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I wonder if you think about her, yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, one of the first paintings that I, like, painters that I saw when I was also at Grove Washington, the community college, I remember being in the, the library there and just, like, walking, looking at art books. And one of the first books, I don't even know, maybe my professor, Alberto, told me to look up Alice Neal. But I remember, I don't I can't remember what painting it was. But I, it's it's in my mind. It's like in my skull. I remember opening it up, and it was like, like it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Like looking at those paintings, like they really, she really kind of captures the a psychological space of a person that has lived ruggedly through in the world, and. I don't remember. I remember the eyes were blue and I think the face was kind of blue, like the, the, the stark lines, like uh, defining things. Yeah, I mean, I still look at those paintings. The main difference is that I'm not directly in relationship to the figures when I'm depicting them. It is more of an abstraction that I'm in that I'm recreating this moment or recreating an event or a situation which has now opened up all this other stuff for me to examine because the, the process is slower and I'm alone and I'm responding to many different things rather than what is also directly in front of me, also what is inside of me. And dealing with that as a painter has informed me. The lines and shapes in your pictures are always more important than the sitters. And in Neil, the figures are more important than anything else. Yeah, totally, 100%. And I think I felt really bad about that for a while in some ways. But now I, I don't because I'm really interested in where those lines and shapes take. And I'm and that is actually very important. Like where can I go and how can I get there and what can I create and what can I build and what can I make? 
those things are also equally important to me now as an artist. Alex Bradley Cohen, thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual-language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu palmyra. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side-by-side side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash Hockney Van Gogh. Welcome back. Next up, Anne Duma joins me to discuss Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, which is at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston through June 20th. The exhibition, Houston is its only American stop, reveals how David Hockney has mined Vincent van Gogh's paintings and drawings in ways that have informed his mark-making, his compositions, and plenty more. The excellent exhibition catalog, and one reason it's so great is it is fantastically designed. The designers are Julian Klein and Studio Barry Slock. That catalog is available from Amazon for $29. And Duma, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, it's very, very good to be here and to have a chance to talk to you about this exhibition, Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature. One of the things that really struck me about the catalog for the show is how often Hockney is looking directly at Van Gogh and that he's riffing on Van Gogh even more specifically, I think, than he does even Picasso or Matisse. What in Van Gogh, other than his art historical prominence and significance, of course, do you think attracted Hockney to him? I think a number of things attract Hockney to Van Gogh. One of the main ones for me is Hockney's love of mark-making, both in his paintings and I think you notice very clearly in his drawings, his charcoal drawings, and we have a whole wall of those in the exhibition. And of course, Van Gogh is a wonderful mark-maker, especially in his reed pen drawings of which we also have uh, some examples in the show, just because of the sheer variety of the marks and little dots, dashes, squiggles, spots. And they're so expressive and, and give the drawings so much vitality. But it also carries over into the paintings as well. And Hockney has said about Van Gogh that he thinks that one of the reasons that people love Van Gogh's paintings so much is that you can see how they're made. You can stand in front of them and see all the brushstrokes and see how he's put it together. The other thing that I think Hockney really loves about Van Gogh is Van Gogh's colour. He has said on several occasions that for him, Van Gogh is a truly 
great colorist and he thinks a greater colorist than he Hockney is. Of course, Van Gogh's working at an earlier time, so he doesn't have quite the same pigments available to him that Hockney does today. But one thing they both do is really intensify color, add electricity, energy to it to make it pop and to make it more visually and emotionally expressive. Do you have a sense or indeed actual knowledge of what individual painting or group of paintings motivated Hockney to address Van Gogh so directly? I don't know which particular paintings. I mean, he he must know Van Gogh's work pretty well. I mean, I'm sure he's visited the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, for example, on many occasions, and he knows would know from you know reproductions. So I, I can't think of any particular... I, I've never heard him mention a particular painting, though I'm sure he has, rather than just sort of talking in, in general terms. In terms of the exhibition, we tried to select paintings and, and drawings by Van Gogh that we felt really suggest a rapport with the works by Hockney that we have in the show. So, for example, when you enter the exhibition in the very first gallery, we have what for me is one of Van Gogh's most beautiful paintings. It's the view of Arles with irises in the foreground, which we're borrowing from the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. And it just, you know, it's got these wonderful mark-making dashes in which he suggests the texture of the grasses. But the whole composition plays around the complementaries of the, the violet blues of the irises in the foreground and then the yellow cornfields behind and we've hung that next to some of Hockney's early Yorkshire landscapes, the ones he was doing in around 2005. And I think these really speak to that kind of landscape by Van Gogh. You mentioned Yorkshire. Van Gogh makes quite a number of, of harvest paintings in the south of France and Hockney makes a number of of harvest paintings in Yorkshire. There's obviously, of course, a long tradition of harvest paintings in in European and, for that matter, American painting. What in Van Gogh's treatment of the type particularly interested Hockney? Well, yes, the harvest is a subject that particularly interests Hockney. And when he returns to Yorkshire from a long period in California in around 2005, when he really starts looking at the landscape where he grew up, in fact, in East Yorkshire. He he does a lot of paintings in high summer and a whole series of watercolors, but also in several oil paintings. And you get this feeling of this sort of brilliant, hot light. I mean, there aren't that many really hot summer days in England, but there are always some, and they're very special when they, they come. And I think he loves that the warmth and the sense of heat in in the wheat field and in the in the corn uh, sheaves of corn, which he really contrasts with this blue sky. Hockney himself, as a teenager when he was a schoolboy, used to work as a holiday job in the summers on local farms, and he's he's remarked about this you know this very kind of gently rolling agricultural still today, landscape of East Yorkshire, how, you know, he's really dwelt in that landscape and therefore it's really full of memories and associations for him. As whereas Van Gogh in the south of France, in the landscape around Arles in Provence, was also a landscape he did not come from. He came from southern Netherlands is where he was born and, and where he spent much of his early life. And then a couple of years in Paris before moving down to the south of France, 
But once he'd got to Provence, he identified and felt very close engagement with the landscape in the way that Hockney does in, in Yorkshire. And I think they're both very interested in the cycles of the seasons. And of course, harvest is very much associated with late summer and with this sort of warm, hot light. So I think that's why it's a, a subject that appealed strongly to both artists. Another subject that appeals to both of them that's well represented in Houston is is forests. You know, I think their paintings of forests are are pretty different, but I think you can also see how Hockney is informed by by Van Gogh's looks at at trees and, 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 and mini trees. What is he taking from them and then what is he kind of doing notably differently? Well, I think both artists were for both artists the subject of the tree is a really powerful motif. They've both spoken of, or Van Gogh wrote about it quite a lot in his letters, many of his letters to his brother, Theo, and Van Gogh and Hockney has also spoken about the significance of trees to him. And for both of them, trees have an emotional resonance and I think a sort of symbolic force as emblems of the life force in nature. Hockney said that trees are as individual as people. Each one has its own personality and that they can't be confined by any notion of perspective, for example, because the branches just go all over the place. Whereas for Van Gogh, he has, in one letter to his brother Theo, he, he writes about that trees are kind of a, a real expression of the force of nature and that trees have a soul. And there is no doubt that many of his paintings of trees do have this very uh, strong emotional force, especially some of the paintings that he did of the pine trees in the garden of the asylum in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence, where he admitted himself in the May of 1889 and spent a year there. We have two paintings in, in the exhibition in Houston of the trees in that garden, and in both of them, the, the sort of branches of the trees arc very powerfully right across the canvas. And in one of them, some of the branches are quite ravaged and dead. And so I think that trees really are about the transience of time and the passage of, of life. And with Hockney, he was very struck one day in the countryside in the woods in East Yorkshire on seeing a, a dead tree. And then next time he went to the same spot, the tree had been cut down and was left as just a lone, quite tall stump of a, a tree trunk, which he drew and painted many times. He became absolutely fascinated with this subject and wrote this rather sort of poignant form of the dead or still standing, but chucked down tree trunk and it's sort of solitary lone presence and yet still in spite of the fact it's poignant and sad in some ways still has a great sense of, of dignity as an object. So I think you know there's a great deal of similarity and resonance in, in the way the two artists approach trees. Another aspect that seems to have appealed to them is this very close looking. So a number of Van Gogh's woodland subjects, he's looking very closely at the floor of the forest just covered in leaves or very closely at the bark of a tree, taking a sort of very unusual viewpoint from very low to the ground. Hockney never quite does that, but he is also very interested in the, in the textures of trees. There's a great example of what you just described in the tree trunks and the grass painting at the Kroller-Muller Museum in Otterloe, where the two tree trunks on the left-hand side of the painting 
are an opportunity for Van Gogh to extend his palette, to use color to provide texture and dimension. And it's one of the paintings I thought of when you spoke earlier about how Hockney was attracted to Van Gogh's color. There are places, like in the iPad drawings, and the iPad drawings are kind of necessarily flattened by the technology, if you will, where it seems like Hockney is looking or thinking about tree trunks such as those. No, that that's painting you're referring to. We have that in the show. It's a marvelous painting. I think it's one of my favorite paintings by Van Gogh because there's this carpet of spring flowers and grasses and little flowers and the bark of the trees is rendered. You, you really sense the sort of rough texture. And as you say, he's used color. He's used little touches of a kind of a burnt orange color, which really make the blues, the softer blues and greens of the foliage around sing. And nearby, we have some of Hockney's monumental paintings of trees where you don't see the whole tree, you just see the tree trunk in a woodland setting with where the ground is a carpet of spring flowers. So there's a lovely synergy between that particular painting from the Krolemula by Van Gogh and some of the big arrival of spring paintings by Hockney. You mentioned earlier that one of your, your interests here was the artist's shared interest in mark making and, and how they made both drawings and paintings. There is a drawing in the show, I think from the Manil, of, of a garden with a weeping tree in Arles. Is, is there a drawing of Hockney's that you think maybe lines up to how Van Gogh makes marks in that drawing and maybe what, what Hockney learns from drawings such as that? Yes, the Manil drawing is a fabulous drawing by Van Gogh. It's of this, um, actually, what was quite an ordinary public park in Arles, in Provence. But for Van Gogh, he wove all sorts of poetic associations into it. He called it the Poet's Garden, partly because he was thinking of Petrarch. But the, the range of strokes in that drawing, it, it's a really outstanding example of this mark-making that Hockney admires so much in him. He says he said about Van Gogh that he has tremendous graphic clarity, which I think is a rather wonderful phrase because there's such a range and variety of different kind of marks in this drawing. But because it, it, they're so clear, it's never a muddle. Each, each stroke is, is defined and, and separate, and yet they work together as a whole. Hockney has not, as far as I know, worked in that same technique, which was so, is so distinctive for Van Gogh, the, using the reed pens. You know, he would literally cut reeds from the side of the road and shape, shape the end into the form of a nib and use it with ink to make these drawings. Hockney's main medium for drawings is charcoal, which if is very different from a reed pen, but nevertheless, he does get the most magnificent range of textures and marks that really are very, very sort of close to Van Gogh in many ways in his drawings of these woods in East Yorkshire. There's one I'm looking at here called Woldgate, 26th to 27th of June, 2012, which he has the same different kind of marks. I mean, you wouldn't mistake a Hockney drawing for one by Van Gogh, but nevertheless, there's a very strong similarity, I think, in the way that they translate 
their visual perceptions of the textures, in this case of trees, foliage, the tree trunks, the light, sunlight, filtering through the trees directly into these very individual and expressive marks. The foliage in a Hockney drawing titled Still There from 2008 has some of the exuberance of the Van Gogh drawing at the Manil, but the one that really jumps out at me is the foreground of a Hockney drawing from 1978 in Denver, where <laughs> the, I don't know if you would call it a driveway or a, a, an area in front of a garage, almost seems to be a riff on, on etching in a way that the Van Gogh drawing at the Manil might be. Mm, yes, I, I completely agree. It's uh... There's something very close to to etching in the way that they they use marks, but not in an etching technique, in a drawing technique. Andy Ma, thanks so much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.